Welcome to Circular Firing Squad. I'm Marty Gensius, a counseling faculty at Kent State University and host for Circular Firing Squad. We've got six members, six questions, and six answers each for each question. Questions are generated from the squad and run from the factual to the funny. Let's find out who's with us tonight. Jen Cook, Assistant Professor, Marquette University. Eric Perry, clinical faculty member at Southern New Hampshire University and co-host of the Tech Savvy Professor. Hi, everyone. Gina Martin from University of Iowa. I'm a doctoral candidate, and I'm also an affiliate faculty member at Northwestern University and co-host of Supervision Time. Stephanie Martyr, doctoral candidate at Kent State University, practicing clinical counselor and co-host of Grad School Deconstructed. Hi, everybody. Uh, Elliot Ingersoll, professor of counseling at Cleveland State University and co-host of Apply Topically. And we're going to start off with a question tonight from Jen. All right. I think we're all about to start a new semester. Some of you all may have started it already. I'm I'm about two weeks out. Um, but my question is coming to you about your new semester. What does your division of labor look like this semester? So how much is research, teaching, service, et cetera. Um, and is this the per a preferred balance for you, what you have this semester? And we're going to start with Eric. So I'm going to answer the second question first and say, I don't really know. Uh, taking a little bit of a break from service things, and I'm, I'm usually really heavily involved. So I'm taking a little bit of a reprieve there, but I, I have a couple of writing projects on tap and, and a pretty full teaching schedule. So I'm pretty excited about it to, to see how it goes and to see how quickly I really miss getting back into service things. But the, the break will be nice. The shift will be nice. And, and I'm really excited just to get back to writing. I, I've skipped out on that quite a bit over the last six, nine months. So I'm pretty excited. And I think Gina has an next response. Yeah. So this semester for me, I'm finishing up my dissertation. So I feel very heavy on the research just because that has been a heavy lift um, just with the study that I'm doing for that. And I, I have to say, I would like to have more of variety in how much research I'm doing and what projects I'm working on and stuff like that. I usually have about three or four projects lurking in the background that I can easily, you know, jump from one to the next and that kind of thing. And right now it just feels so heavily weighted with the dissertation. Um, and then beyond that, I'll still be teaching three courses this semester and doing some supervision as well for the university. And then for service, <laughs> this semester is also particularly heavy since I'm the president of our CSI, Phi Sigma Iota, and uh, we have a big induction to plan for the first time virtual, and I just happen to be the president. So that'll be an exciting and different type of balance this semester. How about you, Marty? Right now, it's all over the place. Um, I'm trying to finish up some writing and then everything else is starting. So three courses online, um, this podcast, and then a new roundtable podcast. I want to start um, some research I've been invited to do on perspectives on teaching and another piece of research I want to do looking at late career counselor educators. So a little bit of navel gazing uh, research is one way to look at it. ACA ACEs, North Central ACEs leadership work. I'm on a board right now that's trying to develop a trauma association. I've got site visits and developing training for KCREP. And that's just some of what I have on my to-do list, but I like it that way. No balance. It's what I prefer. I can't wake up to a work world that's predictable. Uh, for me, it's crazy and I love it. Stephanie? 
Let's see. So no teaching, but I am working with clients, you know, three days a week. I, I work at the practice, a bunch of research. I would say 50% research as I'm working on dissertation as well. And uh, I guess a little bit of other stuff, but that stuff won't take up too much time. Um, it's just a crunch for the next couple of weeks. And then um, service wise, it's a mixed bag, I suppose. I think even when listing, um, I think this podcast come, falls out under service technically when I was asking about where it goes on, on a CV. So, um, but also uh, a couple organizations um, through NCACs and yeah, so it's like 50% research, 35% work and 15% service slash other. Elliot. Um, well, this is a big teaching semester for me. I have my 60 to 70 person psycho farm class and two other classes. So I've got about 140 students I'm responsible for. And uh, this was selfish. It was for me, but I'm going back in the classroom. And I said, I'm doing face to face. We, we have a, we, I, I checked, we, we had a, it was a government grant uh, that universities could get. And it was a couple million dollars and they got the HVAC fixed so that the airflow is optimal for decreasing the probability of COVID. So we've got that we're wearing masks and we're socially distant, but I, I, if I tried to teach three classes remotely, I think I would lose what was left of my mind. Couldn't do it. So I said, and and I got about 50-50 in each class. 50% uh, are going to show up and 50% want remote and we're going to stream it live. So I'm very excited about that. But I'm also like, well, there's some technological challenges and I want to make it engaging for everybody. So that's really going to be, you know, where I think most of my 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 effort is is going. Uh, I've got service and writing, but I'm kind of at a point in my career. There are things I want to write about. I don't think anyone wants to read them, but I want to write about them. And, you know, so they're kind of like out there. Anyway, um, Jen, back to you. What's your response? So this semester looks a little different for me because my teaching is actually lower this semester because of my service. So it's, it's pretty rare for me to teach only one course. And that's what I'm, I'm only teaching one course this semester. And I am, I'm, ex, I'm teaching at hybrid, but what that means right now, I'm not entirely sure. So it's going to be a revamp, uh, despite the fact that I've taught this course, I think, I don't know, eight or nine times at this point, it's, it's going to be like writing a new course in some ways because of the format changes. Um, but I've had some service switching at my university. So my services switching up a little bit. Um, I'm practicum and internship coordinator. So I'm finishing our placement process right now for all of our um, students who came in in the fall who are going on prac, which is always a huge job. But we um, increased our enrollment in clinical mental health by, I, I think we were up 20 students this year over last year. So it was a much, much different kind of service obligation. I, I'm finishing as North Central ACES past president and some other uh, regional and national service, but those are coming to a close. And so when I was thinking about this question, things are shifting. Um, my research is ever present, even though I am in the process right now of um, hopefully earning tenure very shortly. Um, but, you know, I gave myself a bit of a writing 
break um, because mentally I think I needed it during COVID, but now I am going to have more time to be able to get back into that, which I've already started, which is really exciting for me because that's one of my loves is writing and research. So it's a, it's a switch up. I'm not sure if I like it yet because this is not the kind of semester I've had in the past. So I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. Um, But I'm, I'm optimistic and of course, looking forward to being back, having our students back again. So, all right, next question, heading over to Eric. Sorry to interrupt, Jen, but I just want to say, you know, I think that that uh, uh, name label past president, that sounds a bit macabre. Couldn't we say prior president? You could still have a P squared kind of acronym. Anyway, just my take on it. Sorry to interrupt. Eric, back to you. I like the idea. Death by presidential year. <laughs> Hanging on for the last thread? I don't know. Sorry. Done. Edit. (laughs) I don't know. It might be a good segue. So my question changes things a little bit uh, in terms of the tone. Describe your sense of humor. Is it dark, silly, dry, mood dependent, or other? And our first response goes to Gina. I love this question. I spent so much time today thinking about this and wondering and having conversations with my husband about it. And according to him, uh, he says I have a quirky sense of humor. I I don't know about that, but I think that my humor is usually dry. I enjoy dry humor. I enjoy sometimes dark humor. I think it's mood dependent, depending on what I've gone through that day. Oftentimes, humor is a coping mechanism for me uh, when I'm having a hard day. I oftentimes will, I I like to self-deprecate and use that to have some humor and to make myself feel better, to make other people feel better. So that would, that would be mine. I don't know if I'm necessarily outright funny, but I enjoy, uh, I enjoy other people's sense of humor and their uh, funny sides as well. How about you, Marty? I love this question um, too. I uh, but it's it's hard for me to conceptualize it. I, some of, I mean, most of you are friends. Some of you have spent time with me. Some of you have sat through dinners with me. And I, it took me, it was just this year, I learned what it's called that I do a lot. Um, it's called callback humor. So I will listen to conversations with people and remember something that they've said about themselves. And then when they're talking about something different, inject that piece that they've already admitted to themselves about. For me, I did that in therapy all the time. When I was working with clients, it's that listening piece and connecting back something that they've said. And sometimes it's used to provoke Sometimes it's used to support. Um, Sometimes it's used to just show the silliness of what's going on with them. But callback humor is is what I use a lot. I tell stories and embellish them when, especially when I get a laugh out of somebody. Then it's like, okay, let's go to the absurd with them and let's have a great time with them. Dark humor is another piece that I use. Um, For me, there's no such thing as too soon. And I'm married to a person who has a much larger filter than I do. Uh, Oliver Emberton said, if you're not pissing someone off, you're probably not doing anything important. So I play with dark humor. Unfortunately, in public, I have to keep the editor on for that. Sometimes, and it happens at family dinners when my kids are over or my nephew comes to visit, we try to out dark humor each other around the table as we're, we're eating meals. So 
A few of my friends have seen it. My family have seen it. Very few people feel it, but I love it when I can take my filter off. So that's my style of, of humor. Stephanie. Silly gallows. If there's such a category, I was kind of combining some of those options because I suppose it would also be like mood dependent. But when I say silly gallows, I mean gallows humor, but it's more lighthearted gallows, if that's a thing. Even though it's dark, but usually there's the ridiculous behind it. That's generally my go-to for myself and just the way I think about things. But I can also just get really goofy and really silly at times and just have fun. So I can run the gamut, but those are the few that, that I go to the most. Elliot, what about you? Well, you know, my humor comes from my brain, Jimmy, and our brains are milliseconds to seconds ahead of us. So Jimmy's kind of evading the question of classification, but he reminded me in recent social media posts, we were trying to be clever and someone was asking about capital and capital, the spelling. And I said, oh, if you have a lot of capital, you probably aren't going to go and seize the capital. That was clever. But the thing that's funniest to me is person A, help, I got to call 911. Person B, why? What's wrong? Person A, I fell on my ass and it's got a big crack in it. Just really stupid stuff that just kind of hits me. And I think it's a, it's a gene. I got to just share one more story. My son, who is uh, almost 18, when my father passed, we bought his car from my mom and he's been driving it. And an Amazon driver accidentally backed into it in a rainstorm coming out of a driveway across the street. Not a big deal. We worked it out. But we were getting calls from predatory ambulance chasing insurance lawyer types, you know, and he got one on his phone. The car's in my name. So they said, we want to talk to you about the accident your father was in. And without missing a beat, he said, you heartless bastard. My father was killed in that accident. And just pristine and brilliant. I was so proud in that, <laughs> in that moment. Jen? <laughs> Oh, I'm still I'm still laughing along with that. Wow. Part of me wanted to ask and throw this question back to Marty and Eric, because I think they're the two who know me best on this in this group and say, well, what is my humor? I'm not terribly sure, to be honest with you, I guess dry, I would probably say, or um, sort of parody. Like I, I love to kind of twist things around that are obvious to everyone. And I, I would also say that, you know, I'm kind of the obvious humor person. I think that's why I always love Seinfeld so much, because it's obvious and it's just the way that you say it. So I have always enjoyed that kind of humor. And I think that that's probably what I inject pretty regularly into classes and into my work is sort of the obvious humor of why we shouldn't do something or why we do do something, you know. I met my wife in college and there was quite a bit of wooing involved, particularly because she didn't like me as a human the first several times she met me. And I think it has a lot to do with my sense of humor. It's very dry. I don't emote a lot. I'm not like kind of out there high energy. It's just not the way I work. And particularly in teaching my students, they'll catch on after a little while, but there's always that first like real dry kind of joke or observation or whatever. And I get that one student to laugh, right? And I know that's my A student. And then everybody else will follow eventually. It's just always been something with me that, that that's the type of humor that I put out. In terms of what I enjoy, it's all of it. 
And I think it's environment dependent. I love dark humor. I love self-deprecating humor. I love witty humor. It really doesn't matter, but it is a huge, huge coping skill for me and has been. I've been stuck on comedies. I've been stuck on, you know, even my kids just like figuring out jokes and watching YouTube videos. They'll run in and say, hey, listen to this one. I think it's been a huge coping skill with everything going on and something that was, you know, near and dear to my heart. Uh, I think the next question goes to Gina. Yeah, so switching gears a little bit here, my family and I, we watched The Social Dilemma recently, and that's where this question was born out of. So how do you handle social media and clients or students? Do you feel that there's a boundary there, or how do you bring this into the classroom or the counseling room as well? We'll start with Marty. Well, this might be surprising to folks because I do a lot of stuff with tech like Eric does, and it's a closet that never gets opened anymore. I kind of open that door to social media when people want to friend me, open that closet door, put them in the closet, but never really take much out of the closet. So I don't do Facebook. I have a Facebook account. I check it maybe once a week. And each time I do it, I'm less impressed with what's on there. Meals that people have cooked, look at me sort of things. And so it just doesn't, it's just not a platform for me anymore. I have a Twitter account and I post to it occasionally, mostly political stuff. LinkedIn, I rarely go to because I really haven't quite figured out the value of it. So if I get requests for connecting and they're not family or a few close friends, I usually just don't respond to them. When it's a friend of a friend of a friend, just because Facebook thinks I should be connected to them, I just don't respond to them. Um, you know, if you don't ever need to open the closet, then you don't have to interact with what's in there. I'm more concerned about students' privacy than I am with my own. Um, I don't get requests from students that often uh, for my social media. If they're current students of mine, I will generally not let them into that world. If they are past students and they're in some professional position, uh, generally LinkedIn is where I'll add them into that world. But I'm not sure they need to know, you know, my family and my history and my connections that are on Facebook. I have a few doctoral students that I'm working with on projects that we do text back and forth. And as much as people say, never give a student your phone number, I rarely do, but when I do, no one's ever abused it. So that's where I am with social media. I use Twitter. I use TweetDeck. I have curated lists. So there's a whole list of people I follow, and I can turn that list on and see what's going on in politics. I have one for counseling. I have one for Apple Tech. And so I can kind of say, this is the section of the Twitter paper I want to read right now and see what's new with it. But generally, I, I don't use it for interacting in a social way. Steph? Yeah, I don't do that. I don't interact at all, especially with clients. That's just completely off limits to me for multiple reasons, for their privacy, for my privacy, for all boundaries that are good in this world. When it comes to students, pretty much the same thing. There just doesn't seem to be a reason for it. I think it makes things blur too much between relationships. I think it's just been a good rule and it's served me. It's kept probably a whole lot of drama and messiness out of my life by having a clear line. I'm sure that changes 
you know, as I get older, especially with people from school, as we, you know, similar to what Marty was saying is you kind of have different roles later on. But when I'm in a teaching role, no for students and in a professional role, no for clients. Elliot. Well, I'm fine being the kind of troglodyte of the group. I think this is the stuff that is rotting the brains of Americans and other people, other citizenries across the world. I have a Facebook account and I have some former students on it, but, you know, it's pretty limited. I still don't get the value and I don't for the life of me. I do not understand how people make money with a social media platform. Marty, maybe you can give me a tutorial on that at some point. But to me, it's just freaking crazy. And when students in my classes say, well, Dr. I, what about this psychopharmacology thing? It's just on Facebook. My brain goes like Al Pacino. It's like, oh, wow. If I hear one more crazy statement out of your mouth, I'm going to lose my goddamn mind. That's where I'm at. Jen. Yeah, so I tell them up front, don't friend me on Facebook until you've graduated. And P.S., like I spend like probably all of five months, five minutes every six months on Facebook. I mean, honestly, like it's totally lost interest for me, mainly because all the fake booking that goes on of like, look how great everything is. You know, it's like, okay, well, I really do hope it's not great. And like. I don't know, is every minute of every day that you have recorded on Facebook, like seriously, that amazing. Anyway, that's just a short rant of why I'm over Facebook, but I'm not on Insta. Um, I'm on Twitter, but good luck if you can find me. I, I mean, it's not hard, but like, it's not my name or anything, but you know, I mean, I do post occasionally, but more I'm like lurking, reading other crap on Twitter. Um, and anybody can quote unquote friend or follow or whatever it is on Twitter. I'm so, boy, I'm so not tech savvy. This is, this is why they shouldn't let me on the internet at all. But LinkedIn, I do tell them to connect with me on LinkedIn. And I, I actually really like LinkedIn. I read a lot of interesting articles on LinkedIn. And the reason I ask students to, if they, if they're developing a LinkedIn account to follow me or friend me or whatever, it's link me, I guess (laughs) I'm sounding like such an idiot. But I do that so they can start to develop their professional network. Because when I see jobs that fit my former students, I I do post them and, you know, put them out there so that people are able to see them and see if they might be a fit and all of those kind of things like that. So I think it's a good professional networking tool just for students to start getting involved. So LinkedIn, I'm down with the rest of it. Marty brought up texting, which isn't exactly social media, but you know, I have doc student, my, all of my doc advisees have my cell phone number. They don't abuse it. My supervisees that I work with over breaks, especially they have my cell phone number, but it's not like I put it up on the board and I'm like, Hey, y'all text me. You know I mean? I think that's bizarre. Eric. Sorry to interrupt again, but Jen, maybe you and I can develop a podcast for the pod talk network, the tech troglodyte professor. <laughs> The technophobe professor. (laughs) I like both titles. I'm a huge fan of technology in general. Uh, I I think it requires some consideration, though, and I think that's what's missing a lot of the time. My phone number's out there for every student that takes a course with me, but I have no issue with boundaries. You know, I'm more than willing to tell them if they decide to call me at 7 or 8 o'clock at night to ask me a question they could have asked me during a session or in an email, 
you know, what the hell are you doing? I, I think if it gives them an opportunity to show me their ability to manage boundaries, right? And it's never really been an issue. It's something I go over in the beginning of class and, you know, I, I don't worry too much about that. I think when it comes to social media and, and Marty could probably tell you, I think he sent me a Facebook invite like three years ago. I don't use it for personal use. I've used it for, you know, managing other organizations and, and you know, being active in that way. Uh, but I think it comes down to my own personal, I, I don't have control over my own behavior at times. I think the, st- the types of things that we end up seeing on Facebook is so disingenuous or it's so charged or just harmful and mean. And, and I can't handle a bully, particularly in cyberspace, where I feel like I have a little bit of, you know, I'd get in there and get in the fight. And, and I don't think that's healthy or productive for me. You know, much the same way with Twitter. I like LinkedIn a lot. Uh, it's helped me professionally quite a bit, find a lot of different job opportunities and, and make a lot of connections with folks that I don't think I, I would have ever made connections with. Um, so I always support that in terms of my students, you know, during and after. Uh, and there's some some professional guidelines that go along with that. I, I teach career a good bit. I'm a huge career fan. So it comes into play in terms of the coursework that I teach as well. I, I think really with social media and technology, what we have to consider with students is just what's appropriate, right? What, what is the pedagogical purpose of this? What's our role in it? Uh, I think with clients, you know, part of informed consent really early on for me is, you know, this isn't something that we're going to do. Uh, this is a, a professional boundary. This is, you know, separating our roles. If I see you in public, there's certain ways that this interaction goes down. If I see you in cyberspace, we're not going to connect that way. And that's really to protect you and, and to protect the, you know, the sanctity of the relationship. But yeah, I guess we're back to Gina. So as I said before, this question was born out of watching the social dilemma, which I thought was terrifying. So previous to that, way back when I started doing counseling, I was brand new. I was an intern. And I worked at a community mental health agency where we had a bunch of therapists that would hang out and we saw clients really late at night, like sometimes 8, 9 p.m. And so one night we were all hanging out and we had one of my clients was late and we were looking at my wedding pictures on Facebook. At that time, I had gotten married like two years ago. There was one of me in my dress and that was used by like a magazine or something. And so it was like this big thing. and. We had that on the screen and my client walked in and saw it and I was horrified because my client didn't even know I was married, even though I wear a wedding ring and all this. And so we sat down and we used like the first 10 minutes of session and my client was like, I can't believe you're married. And I was like, okay, let's, let's talk about that. And I was so on edge because I had never had something like that happen before. And that night I decided I would put all of my accounts on super private. So like Jen, what you mentioned, good luck finding me. No one has ever been able to find me on that. So, yeah, I think having strong boundaries is really important. All right. Next question goes to Marty. Yeah, my question is a, is a simple one. Uh, at least I, I hope it's a simple one. What do you look for in your professional associations? I, I look for efficiency. I look, I look for people who are also passionate for a purpose, but also can get things done. And 
it kind of it can feel really frustrating when you go and you're raring to go and you're like, okay, let's do the stuff. Here we are. And it's just, you know, nitpicking little decisions and you'll spend a full meeting kind of picking things apart. So those are professional associations. Like, is this the way you mean it? Like participating in it? Yeah. So like, <laughs> that's what I look for, for, for where I'm going to spend my time and energy towards a common goal with other people. I look for them to be passionate about the subject matter and also having the ability to function as an organization to, to get things done. I'll tell you, I think some of it's developmental. Nah, I always look for this. I want to see a sense of humor. Quite frankly, I've had a lot of near death experiences and, you know, I I'm aware life is very fleeting. It's very short. And I, I don't have much tolerance for, I guess what some people would call pretension, but I liked Stephanie, what you said, Passion. Yes, absolutely. Passion is important and a sense of humor is important. I have been in organizational meetings where they were about as humorous as a group of Scientologists, just not happening, you know? And I'm like, yeah, this is not for me because I was in a, I was a department chair for 10 years. I was president of a cervic and past president, soon to be prior president. I mean, I was all that, and I was very disappointed in how how people came together. But I also began to appreciate the complexity of how how do you get people at different developmental levels who envision the big picture differently and with different strings attached to the narcissistic vision of what I want. And I, I had mentioned uh, Dr. Judy Moranti before, who she was as perspicacious as a person as I've ever met, but a delightful sense of humor and a deep passion for what she did and a compassion for the people doing it with her, which would kind of add lightness and levity to the meetings. And that was how I got into a cervic. I just, I just thought she was brilliant and kind. And, and that was, what, that was uh, what mattered, you know, to me. Jen, how about you? I would say that what I want from professional organizations is that they are truly working on behalf of whatever it is their identity is formed around. So if it's, you know, Elliot, you brought up a cervix. So um, spirituality, religion, ethics, values, you know, that should be motivating the work of their board, the overall move of the organization, um, I would say in terms of advocacy within the profession, because it's a specific kind of association with religion and spirituality. I'm just using this as an example. But where does that fit in with the counseling profession or with counselor education, with supervision, like the different arms? Um, how, how are we getting better um, as counselors or as uh, counselor educators, as supervisors, because a cervic exists, right? So I think that that's really what I'm looking for in terms of professional organizations, that idea of forward thinking. Yes, I do think it is uh, difficult to bring together multiple ideas and figure out how to move forward. But I think that that's the goal of communication within any group that is really working to represent a group of people and to work with and on behalf of that group. 
And I see that as vital, um, especially for our profession, which relatively speaking is incredibly young. Um, We're still babies in the professional world. And so when I think about, you know, the professional organizations within counseling and counselor education and sort of our broad ring of professional identity, I want to see our organizations really work to um, sustain us, to establish us and to move us forward um, rather than spinning, spinning wheels or um, in some cases moving backwards. I think that's what I hope for. Eric. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you both said it really well. I agree. And uh, also I'm very cheap, right? Like I I need, if I'm going to spend money, on something, if I'm going to put that out there or use my professional development funds or, or whatever it is, it needs to do something for me professionally that's of a benefit. It doesn't do much for me just sitting on a CV. I, I really need it to have some purpose and some value. You know, I, I was at the store forever ago, pre-COVID, obviously, with my brother-in-law and, and his wife, and they're trying to sell her triple A on our way out of the grocery store and she doesn't drive. So she's like, why would I buy triple a? I don't, I don't drive. I don't have a car. Like, well, they're like, if you're riding in someone's car, you can use it, you know, and they're trying to like pitch all the benefits and whatever. And they're like, and you can get triple a discounts. And, and, you know, it was a fairly good sales pitch because you think triple a and you think you need it if, if you have a car or whatever, but there's all these other things it can do for you. I, I think at the same time, when we look at some of these organizations, we'll see what they put out there. And what they can do and whether or not they deliver it is another story. So I, I need that those promises delivered on. And, and much in the same way as Jen and Elliot said, I, I need them to show me that they're working toward those things that I'm buying into, literally, um, that I'm putting money forward in saying that, uh, you know, I'm you know right there with you. So whether it's serving that organization or just participating as a member, it has to bring that value for me. Gina? Yeah, I think value added is a huge component of this. Um, but for me, I... I think I keep coming back to authenticity, which is similar to what Elliot and, and Steph had mentioned too. Um, but authenticity, congruence, <laughs> keeping in line with your values and that kind of thing. Uh, and on top of that, communication, conferences, networking, that type of stuff, something to bring people together, I think is so important. Marty? Well, I, I asked this question because I think we, because I'm involved in a lot of associations and enjoy that part of service and leadership. But uh, I, I was curious about what you wanted out of them. My experience is that I, I really, when I first started joining them, I really didn't expect much out of them. I was told you join these because that's what you are. You're a professional counselor or you're going to be a counselor educator and find the money and join it. You're it's like be it's like union dues for us in that sense, and these associations represent a guild of practitioners and and those who train them. So, yeah, it was nice. They sent us a journal every month or every uh, three months. We got a journal from them, and they had this thing called a conference that we could go to. But I never really expected too much out of them, and I think that's changed. We've moved more into an exchange economy with that. So it's not I'm giving them. $100 a year because it's good karma. I expect something out of uh, the association in return. And over the last 20 or 30 years, associations, I think, have done a good job of recognizing that. And the return on investment for folks uh, is much better. I just don't understand. I mean, ACA has 50,000 members. 
and there are, what are the numbers, 200,000 or more people who are counselors in the field. And ACA only has a portion of those members that are counselors. It's sort of like, you should be involved in your profession and be part of the guild. And don't I don't want to hear that. I don't want to support them because they took a stance on blah, 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 blah. Support your profession. If you don't like what they're taking a stance on, get involved and try and make some changes or at least uh, support what you want to support within the organization. So um, that that's my take. I had a little bit of rant in there, but um, everybody is looking for, I think, good things out of their association. Question now goes to Stephanie. So I'd like to know, what's the anxiety dream you have regularly? You know, we all have the one that we have all the time. So what's that anxiety dream you always have, Elliot? It's funny because uh, for 15, 17 years, my anxiety dream was I'm in a house. It's dark. There are people who need help. They're crying out and I can't find them. And I'm like running up and down hallways and I can't find them. Horrible. And I wake up cold sweat and all that. But I, I will say since uh, April, I had a different one. It's a, it's, a, it's a COVID nightmare. And I'm in Subway sandwiches. And I don't have a mask. And I am like, we're all pushed together in a line and no one has a mask. And I am like, oh, bugger. I, I put my shirt up over my mouth. And I'm like, give me some space. You're spewing germs. And everyone's like, it's a hoax. COVID's a hoax. And then I wake up in the same cold sweat. I kind of actually prefer it to the searching for people who need help in the house stream. Uh, but it's not terribly pleasant. Um, but there you go. Jen, how about you? Well, I have two and I'm, I'm already laughing because they both have to do with like my education when I was like a kid. So one is with junior high and the other is with high school. So the one related to high school is that, you know, I'm about to graduate with my PhD and I get a call that I haven't finished a math class from high school and I have to go back and take a math class. And I go back to my high school and I'm like barefoot and they tell me I can't come in because I'm barefoot. Then they tell me that, you know, my teacher died. And so I can't take the test. I mean, just on and on and on. And I'm like, look, I just need to go finish my PhD. I'm trying to graduate with my PhD. And they told me I have to come back to Vero Beach, Florida and take um, my finish this math class or take this math class, which is kind of hilarious because like, I never really went high in the math class rank. So I think I was done by like 10th or 11th grade, you know? So, I mean, it's just wild. The other is that I can't find a bathroom that is acceptable to me to use. And I, and I've really, I've really got to pee and I keep looking and looking. And every time I find a bathroom, it's my junior high school bathroom like I mean I can see it like I can see every stall that the, the it was a very bizarre setup but at any rate all of the stalls are filthy which they pretty much were in my junior high but every single bathroom I go to the the toilets are filled up you know like I can't use them I mean it's torture I mean that one's not hard to analyze neither is the first one to be completely honest so you know Eric I think with the head shaking, at least half of us have had the Billy Madison type dream, right? 
that we need to go back for one reason or another. I think my my recurring dream comes. It's weird, right? So no judgments, please. I don't know why I say stuff here that people can listen to later. So I, I was a latchkey kid and uh, really young and always had this fear that someone was going to be behind the shower curtain, right? I don't know if it was too early exposure to Hitchcock or what, but, it, you know, I still get made fun of. My own kids make fun of me in my own house because every time they go in the bathroom, the shower curtain's open, they know it's because I did it right? Because I do it habitually. And I'll still have the dream every once in a while that I'm in the bathroom, I go to open the shower curtain, and someone's there, right? That is what it is. Gina? I love these. So I have dreams. I have lots of vivid dreams. And Elliot, I have to respond to yours. So you're running around a house searching for people who are screaming who need help. I am those people. So in my recurring dream, this is so crazy, but in my recurring dream, I'm in a house that I don't recognize. And it's a house that's like Willy Wonka meets Disneyland. So it's like kind of loopy, like think a little acid trip kind of style house. And I'm on a roller coaster through this house and the hind kill me. So there's like a metal blade that comes down and I fall off the roller coaster and then the carpet's trying to eat me and I'm screaming and the house has these walls that are closing in on me and I'm screaming and, I, and at, nobody's there and I'm trying to find people to help me get out from this house. So that's one that I have consistently. Another one that I have consistently that's from college. This is also so strange. And I feel like at one point I thought about going into horror film writing because of my very vivid nightmares. Um, but I'm in my dorm room and I'm hiding under the bed because this guy with red eyes is trying to find me. And he's like in this big cloak and big red eyes and super like like glowing white skin. And he's like finding me and I'm hiding under my dorm room, you know, twin bed. And all of a sudden everything goes quiet and I feel like I can emerge. And so I start to come out and there's all these dead bodies hanging from a tree right outside my dorm room. And they're like hitting the window. So anyway, that's a little bit about my dreams, but those are some of the recurring ones. I've also had very strange, you know, other ones with like driving and very vivid, very realistic. So really interesting question. Just, hey, Gina, let's try an experiment, okay? In Dream World, I'm going to leave you a retractable police baton. It opens, it's about this big, and it opens to about one and a half meters, and it'll stop the walls from closing in, and you can, you know, crack on the skulls of anyone who's trying to get you off that roller coaster. We'll see how that goes. Perfect, perfect. And maybe the screaming will stop in yours. <laughs> I was just going to say, I don't know if I'm more afraid for Gina or of her at this point. <laughs> <laughs> on to you, Marty. So now we're all going to have pleasant dreams tonight, right? After all these descriptions. And I guess my question is, does anybody in this group have dreams that are not anxiety driven? Because it seems like the only ones I remember are those that are anxiety driven. And when I was younger, it was falling off the third story. I was on the balcony outside a window of my grade school and falling off that was was the dream that was a recurring dream and uh then it became uh i've been invited back to a radio station i used to work at they're going to give me an hour to do a show live and i just could not do it i could not 
find records. I couldn't do anything that I needed to do in terms of it. But lately, it's been zombies. Zombies after me and people who are, who are in my group. They're all strangers. They're not any people I know um, who I'm protecting. And, and those people eventually are turning into zombies. And that's really not my genre. I don't watch that stuff. Um, it's not part of my my thinking or my experience, but that comes up. Now, perhaps that's symbolic of people trying to consume me in, in the real world. But um, I have these fitful dreams. As a kid, I slept walk a lot. Aileen has woken me up in the middle of the time night multiple times while I'm punching and screaming and fending off zombies. Uh, we have a king-size bed, so she can generally stay out of the way of, of me fending off flesh eaters. And, and she says, however, I box like a, a, a rock'em sock'em robot or like a T-Rex with really short arms. I don't do full extensions. So Aileen so far has not been injured in the process. Stephanie? I have two, like most of you, um, in addition to the having to go back, except... Jen, I have to go back for English class um, when I have to go back to high school. And for whatever reasons, I like never read the book during the semester when I'm going back to get to finish high school so I can. OK, so anyway, I have a lot of dreams about being attacked military style, like you're in your house and then all of a sudden there are like explosions in the sky. You see planes falling and then rockets kind of coming and exploding near you and just all around you. And um, you're running and you're moving and then all of a sudden it goes quiet and you're like, okay, it's passed. And then they start up again and there's never really a safe place. You know, nothing ever gets destroyed exactly where I am. Kind of things are crumbling all around me. But uh, then every time you think, the danger has passed. You're always worried. And then you kind of see a little thing and you're like, oh no, it's coming again. The other one is I get to meet up with my friends who live mostly in New England. So friends from my college days and we get together and I don't know, we go to like a dance hall. It's people's weddings. It's people I don't know very well, but they're like, come. And I get super drunk to the point where like half an hour in, we're dancing. I just throw up all over the dance floor. Um, <laughs> and then my friends don't want to be my friends anymore. And I have no more friends. So the friends I've had for 20 years, I just discuss them so much. They don't want to be my friends anymore. Um, so, so those are the two anxiety dreams I have. And luckily now it's time to move on to, to Elliot's question. So my, my question is, why, why do you think so many Americans love to hate on higher education? Jen. Well, I don't think my answer is going to come as much of a surprise because I, to any of you all, because you know that I research social class and socioeconomic status. And I think a lot of this is rooted in privilege. It's rooted in who typically was allowed to go to college, university, et cetera. And, you know, relatively, relatively historically speaking, it has not been that long that 
college and university has really been open to women, to um, people who are racial minorities, to um, people who are first generation, so low SES or first generation college. So like we we have that history behind us of not that long ago, um, access was not high for, you know, women, people who are black, people who are low SES, et cetera. And then you add on to it that the structure in the system, even though there is access, so that door has been cracked open, the system really hasn't changed that much. So once you get into that system, if you don't fit into those dominant cultural identities, it's weird as hell. Um, And you spend most of your time and energy, if you make it even through Sting, because it's such a mind screw. Um, trying to figure out what the hell is going on, you know? So I think that for a lot of people, it seems like a lot of cost, you know, of course, monetarily, the price of college has gone up exponentially since uh, the student loan cap came off in 1992. But there is just such a, a cultural difference between what goes on in most universities and what goes on in the quote unquote real world in the working class world. And uh, low social class world, um, one in which that is very difficult to understand, even when you are part of it. So, you know, Marty got his rant before. I'm going to give you all my rant now, which is it feels, at least from my perspective, very difficult to understand higher education, even as somebody who's been a part of it for a really long time, especially as a first generation person um, and, you know, has other um, identities that are non dominant to understand what this system is about, how it continues to perpetuate in the privileged dominant way that it does, and why we haven't been able to really make great shifts so that education is more accessible to more people um, in a meaningful way. So that's, I mean, I'll go, I'm going to stop because I could go on for six years and y'all know that about me when it comes to class, but um, this is really disappointing that it isn't more accessible. And I completely get why people want to dis higher education, but that's not the reason to eliminate it. You know, upper ups in the government. Hope you're hearing me on that one. Eric. Yeah, I I agree. And I think my opinion is somewhat shaped by my own experience. And I think, you know, my family comes from Appalachian roots. Most of my extended family are, are coal miners. Uh, in West Virginia are military. I'm the first generation not military of the men in my family. Um, It's a very foreign concept, uh, higher education. And I think I I had some family genuinely rooting, like being the first to get a college degree was like a really big deal. And then others who, you know, were just, who do you think you are? Does this make you better than me? That kind of attitude, which I think comes out of that, right? Um, and for a while, you know, I, I working as a counselor in a master's degree and, you know, my dad's favorite line was your brother's trucking and making more money than you with your master's degree, you know, and, and I think there's some just equating this to, you know, the difference between profession and finance and, and you know, being happy and having a career and being stable and, um, you know, there just isn't that understanding out there. And I mean, I made so many mistakes talking about student loans. Um, Because I had no no idea how to navigate the system and neither did anybody in my life, right? So I I made so many mistakes. And and I think there's such a different, if you're not part of or or exposed to higher education in a meaningful way, it's like walking in a different world. It really is. 
And then when you become part of it, I feel as if now I'm walking back into somewhere I don't quite belong as much anymore. You know, my old homes don't feel as comfortable um, because I've changed and grown in ways that, you know, those around me haven't. So, you know, I, I think there's, there's just this, this historical context with education, you know, like Jen talked about that it really, you know, adds that, that layer that we need to continue to peel back and not that there haven't been changes and advances and things happening, but it's still problematic. And we see it in enrollments. We see it in, uh, you know, just the types of successes that are out there and, and stories that we see um, and the policies by government, really. I mean, I, I don't want to get political, but I look at our leaders in education recently. I, I mean, and some of the policies that have gone through <laughs> in that regard, right? So, I, I, I mean, it's no wonder that this continues to persist in some ways. Um, so I'm hopeful, but I also understand. Gina? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I grew up highly privileged to have a family who valued higher education um, because so my mom didn't really have access to it. And my dad only did by his own hard work and merit and all this. So I think that having that example really helped lead me down this path. Um, but seeing where so many other people have been coming from and even seeing where my parents were having to come from uh, and seeing like the the journey to get there, I can see how it might be an easy thing to hate. Um, it might be an easy thing to place blame on other people, um, be, you know, all of and all of the things that everybody else has brought up already, I think, contribute to that as well. Um, and like one of you just said, it's not necessarily the reason to throw it out completely, but I think there's definitely room for for change there just because of everything that has been transpiring and everything that's been going on. I think it's it's important to look at, you know, each level when it comes to higher education. Think back to like grade school, access to some of these things, high school, so on and so forth, and creating environments that are going to provide success for individuals throughout the entire course, if that makes sense. Um, so anyway, that's that's my two cents on that. You know, Jen's a hard act to follow on this one. Um, you know, I think Americans like concrete and tangible. And to the degree, that's a fault of our educational system because we've trained people to only want to see what's in front of them. And I think one of the things that I can't at my high school, growing up in my high school, uh, we were just kind of dealing with the tangible and Going to college is where I really felt like I learned how to think and how to reason about things. And I also got the opportunity to be exposed. At that time, they called it a liberal education, politically, but we were forced to take courses in areas that were not necessarily my choice, but it meant I got exposed to a bunch of different ideas that I, and, and arts that I would have never been exposed to. Um, I think most most Americans don't quite even college students who are in the system don't know what goes on in in higher education, and I think we do a poor job of explaining that to the to the public. And if we have haters out there, we we probably need a um, take a hater to work day 
um, experience where they can come and see what goes on in our jobs and uh, of what value that is. And and I respect them. They they are in jobs maybe, and I'm sure that I would not survive in. Um, so I have respect for what they do. I have no disrespect that they're not in higher education, but I would like to see them get more exposed to what the possibilities are here. Steph? So many great points have been brought up already, and I'm trying to think of what I can contribute. And, you know, I'm not sure if this is necessarily new from what's already been said, but I'm going to say it anyways, that I think it's both sides. So it's getting caught in the middle. So if you have the privilege side and people that aren't getting access to education. And then on the other side, you have government and people in power, not only, you know, not supporting and not pushing to, to get people access to education, but also actively saying science is wrong, actively telling people, you know, they don't know anything. These people that have dedicated their lives to higher education, to participating, to learning, uh, know nothing. They have nothing to contribute. So when you get those messages uh, just being shared over and over and over again for years, that's going to then combine with the people who are already uh, denied and disenfranchised and not having access to that education. And then you're going to, it's a double whammy. So it gets magnified that much more when you have people in power just, uh, um, you know, saying science is a sham, you know, my two cents. Now, I appreciate all of those responses, and they really enrich my own understanding and and my camaraderie with you. I'm biased. I like all of you. Okay. So, uh, but, you know, I have a fraught history with a lot of family members, and um, some of my formative years in Canada were with uncles who were not so pleasant. And when I was getting my doctorate, I was cutting down trees in the summer, and my uncle Jack's like, ah, there you are getting a PhD and you're still cutting down trees. And I said, yeah, Uncle Jack, I am, but I have interesting things to think about when I, um, I've been very uh, impressed. Three of the books I read over break, uh, Born a Crime by Trevor Noah, uh, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent by Isabel Wilkerson, and uh, Mediocrity, I think it's The Danger of White Males in America, something like that. I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce this person's name as Joma Aluo, but I'm like, ah, as a scholar who myself, I've done integrative studies in my textbooks. I've had a like textbooks that should have been three years, took eight years because we had to go through so much. These women have written books that are so brilliant and so incisive and so beautifully written. You don't want to put them down. And they have shown how systemically higher education, A, was then used to, well, if you accept the idea that America has a caste system and white males are at the top of the caste system, and then you go from there, well, what happens to all the disenfranchised people? And then, well, the whole history of higher education is a history of disenfranchisement. And I work at an urban university with a very diverse student body, and these people are living these horrors every day. And I think one of the primary reasons Americans love to hate on higher education 
is because disenfranchised, low-income white males whose life has not gone the way they thought it would, welcome to the fricking club. They want to find someone to shout out against. And so they see, oh my gosh, well, women, uh, people of color, they're going to university. So it must be uh, some despotic uh, pit of, you know, propaganda. And it's not. Uh, but when you look at what the United States government, government, which is not a terribly efficient thing, did uh, for my father coming out of World War II, the GI Bill, they were like, well, okay, we've got all these women in the workforce. Uh, yeah, they're, we're going to pressure them to leave, but we also don't want to deal with rampant unemployment. Well, what would be a logical solution? Hey, maybe giving people the skills to go into so-called middle-class life. Now, those options were not made available to people of color. They were not made available to female veterans. Uh, but it's a start. But why do people want to hate on it? Because the people want to hate on higher education. I think they need to feel that they are above someone who's below them. And that is a freaking shared delusion. Delusion, what does he call it? A folia multitudinous. Sorry, got heavy. Maybe the closing shot will lighten us up a bit. I certainly Maybe. hope so. Uh, <laughs> that's it for our round of regular questions. We've got a final shot question. Uh, I will watch anything done by this actor. Jen? I got nothing. I don't follow like that, but I will say I'll avoid anything with Tom Cruise because I find him irritating. <laughs> Eric? Uh, Samuel L. Jackson, right? Because he can swear like nobody I've ever seen and make me smile every single time. I don't really have anything for this one either. I, I love Jude Law, but I haven't watched everything by him. I love Tom Hanks. Again, I don't really think I've watched everything by him, but maybe a toss up between those two. Parker Posey. Elliot. All right. Oh, Gina Davis. And if you haven't checked it out, the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and the Media is the bomb. I mean, she has done amazing things, not just as an actor, but also as an activist. Uh, Paul Newman was my number two, but my number one is Cary Grant. He just mesmerizes me. And in particular, he had a very reflective and hallucinogenic life. Uh, he was uh, doing a little acid therapy during the latter part in his life. You should watch the documentary called Becoming Cary Grant. And it's a very interesting story about him. And, and he had a very interesting life. But uh, it just mesmerizes me on the screen. Thanks to the squad, Gina, Stephanie, Jen, Eric, and Elliot. Look for some of these characters on their podcasts on the podtalk.net. You can find out more about them at circularfiringsquad.net. Our theme music is from Menage Quad, Real Swing Shet. That's it for this episode of Circular Firing Squad. Ready, fire, aim.